This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. It's easy to think we know David Brooks. He has written over 2,000 columns that inevitably provoke conversation. He appears on PBS Weekly. He writes for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, and a slew of other prestigious publications. He's written for the op-ed section of The New York Times since 2003. Yet now, in his sixth book, How to Know a Person, the Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Seen, we learn that the man who seems to be the ultimate conversationalist has been on his own journey to open himself to others and thereby create a world of connections and learning. What he gives us now is the capacity to bridge gaps, know one another, and appreciate that we are each unique and ready to be seen. David, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you for that uh, very apt summary. (laughs) This book is partly a personal journey and partly a social journey we're taking together. Yeah, and so starting with the personal, you open your book describing your family life as think Yiddish, act British. What aspect of your parents or more particularly your grandparents lives came to inform that theme in your family? And and what did that really look like day to day? Yeah, so I, I begin the book by saying, if you ever saw that movie Fiddler on the Roof, uh, you know how, how warm and emotional and huggy Jewish families can be, always singing and dancing with each other. I and come I, from one of those. Oh, see, I come from the other <laughs> kind. I come from the other kind. And so we were, my parents were more or less sort of New York Jewish intellectuals, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. And so at our dinner table, the conversation was about the history of Victorian funerary monuments or the evolutionary sources of lactose intolerance. So <laughs> we, we were very heady, very up in our heads. And we were big readers and writers. And, but we were not, definitely not emotionally communicative. So we were not the kind of family that had a lot of I love yous in the home or, or hugging or things like that. So we were cerebral. And then when I was seven, uh, I read a book called Patties and the Bear and decided I want to become a writer. And writing is also a pretty solitary activity. My joke is in high school, I, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice and she wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I, I write way better than that guy. And so those were my values, that writing was everything. And journalism actually fits in. You think being a journalist, because we interview people all the time, but a lot of people who go into journalism are socially awkward. And we use the interview to structure our social lives. <laughs> it's a way to have a conversation with, with rules. Mm. And so uh, a lot of us, we go into journalism because we're a little aloof. Our job is really to observe people. And I decided that in the, somewhere in the course of middle age that I just wanted to do better, that a life where you've cut yourself off from emotional intimacy with the people around you is a life where you've cut yourself off from life itself. And so I... I'm not an extraordinary person, but I am a grower and I wanted to get better at being the sort of person people would confide in, being the sort of person who people would have memorable conversations, and frankly, being the sort of person who would make others feel seen, heard, known, and respected. Mm. And David, what did motivate you? Was it a eureka thing? Was it 
accretive from your experiences or watching people around you? Because that's a shift that a lot of people don't take without pain or by some like big push, not merely a little push like at night you say, oh, I wish I had been more engaged at a dinner. So was it one thing or was it accretive? Yeah, I think it, a, it was accreting and then it was a crisis. <laughs> and so I tell the story in the book of, of uh, I'm a big baseball fan. I've been to thousands of games and I've never caught a foul ball in my life. And one day I'm with my youngest son in Baltimore and the batter loses control of the bat and it flies through the air and it lands on my lap. And so catching a bat is a thousand times better than getting a ball. And any normal human being is raising his trophy in the air, high-fiving, dancing, getting on Jumbotron. I just put the bat in my, on the ground and stared straight ahead. <laughs> like I had the emotional reaction of a turtle. And so I look at that guy and I think, show a little joy. Mm. And so I think there was some disquiet about that, the inability to be emotionally as open as I should be. But then it sort of manifested, as you say, at a, at a dark time in my life in 2013, 2014, when I'd gone through a divorce and I'd, my kids were going to leave home or had left home for college. And so I was living alone and I had become pretty much a, a total workaholic. And mm -hmm. so I, I did what any American male idiot would do in the presence of a period of suffering, which I, I tried to work my way through it. And so the, the story I tell is that um, in my apartment, I wasn't having anybody over. And if you went to my kitchen drawers where there should have been silverware, I had post-it notes. And where mm. there should have been plates, I'd stationary. So it was a, it was a life overly dedicated to work. And I think I'd sort of closed in on myself over, over the decades. Yeah. Well, bravo for taking another tact, because I think many American males would have, you know, doubled down. <laughs> yeah. One of my sayings is that you can either be broken by suffering or broken open. And some people mm. just, they build up more walls. And some people say, no, I'm going to tear down the walls. And I was inspired in, back in those days and, and still today by a novelist named Frederick Beekner, whose dad, I never had anything this terrible happen to me, but his dad took his own life when Beekner was nine. And he never grieved it. He just covered over. And so he enclosed himself. And then he got to a point in middle age where he thought, no, I really have to learn who my dad was. And I've got to go through this process of grieving. And he eventually got to the point in his 60s and 70s where he was crying about his dad almost every day and facing the sad parts of his life right up front. David, I I don't, I doubt, but I don't know if your parents were alive when you went through that crisis in 13 and 14, but it did it make you ever wonder about how they got to be kind of cerebral and unwilling to, you know, experience one end or the other of the spectrum of emotion? Yeah, I think it, um, they were alive. My father's still alive. And, you know, I, I think it was just the culture in which they were raised. I know a lot of families who grew up in that New York Jewish intellectual milieu. And it was a war of battling ideas. And it, it was not a war where there was the, all, a lot of that hugging going on. So it was just the, the environment in which we lived. And I'm not saying I had a loveless home. Far from it. We just didn't yeah. talk about it. Right, right. It doesn't mean it wasn't there. So one of the stories I love in the book is the story you tell of Jenny Jerome, who alias was Winston Churchill's mother. And it was said when she was young, she dined with the British statesman, William Gladstone, and left thinking he was the cleverest person in England. And later she dined with Gladstone's great rival, Benjamin Disraeli, 
and left that dinner thinking she was the cleverest person in England. And you make a note, it's nice to be Gladstone and it's better to be Disraeli. How would you describe Gladstone's style versus Disraeli's? Yeah, I'm Gladstone was stiff and proper. And I think he was in the mode of broadcasting his own opinions. And Disraeli was in the mode of being curious about the next per- the person that's sitting next to him's opinions. And so it's really the difference between somebody who's sort of on broadcast mode and somebody who's in curiosity mode. Another British statesman I describe in the book was a guy named Arthur Balfour, who came along a little, uh, roughly around that time, a little later. And it was said Balfour was the greatest conversationalist in, in England because he could take the hesitating remarks of a shy man and find unexpected possibilities in it. So mm. somebody would say something to him at a conversation and he'd say, yes, that's brilliant. And then he would expand it. So it was way bigger than whatever the original person said. But you'd feel that he really got you. He understood where you were going and you would leave walking on air, apparently, because he, he would just take a little comment and turn it into a conversational journey. And the distinction I make in the book is between diminishers and illuminators. Mm. And diminishers are, they may be very interesting people, but they don't ask you questions. They're, they're not curious about you. They don't make you feel seen. And I would probably put Gladstone in that category. And illuminators are people who are just very curious about you. They ask a lot of questions and they make you feel respected and lit up. And so I tell the story in there about a guy named Harry Nyquist. Um, he was working at Bell Labs and there were all these other researchers and some of them were very productive and some were not. And the patent lawyers at Bell Labs wanted to figure out why are some of our researchers so much more creative and productive? And they checked out their IQ levels. They checked out their education levels. And eventually they figured out that the most innovative researchers were in the habit of having breakfast or lunch with this electrical engineer, Harry Nyquist. And Nyquist would get into their heads, help them think through their problems, and and help them solve their problems. And it was that active attention that Nyquist gave to them that makes him an illuminator. And so our goal is to be illuminators in the concrete circumstances of life. And David, you describe the purpose of the book as helping us become more skilled in the art of seeing others or making them feel seen or heard or understood. And as I read this book, you know, when you think about the people in your world, you know, the natural conclusion that a lot of us might reach is that you're wired one way, that men are different than women, that somebody's a good talker, they're a good listener, they're an empathic person, they're curious. But are these skills actually skills that we can develop? Yeah, I certainly think so. I think empathy is sort of like athletic ability. We're all born with different levels, but everybody needs practice and everybody gets better with training. And so the the skills of really being a good friend, let alone being an illuminator, let alone making other people feel seen and heard and understood, are you have to teach them their skills just like carpentry or sailing. And they're things like how to listen well, how to know how to disagree well, how do you sit with someone who's going through depression? How do you sit with someone who's lost a spouse or a child? How do you ask for and offer forgiveness? How do you end a conversation gracefully? How do you host a dinner party so everybody feels included? These are very concrete social practices and there's a way to do it better and there's a way to do it worse. And so in the book, I just walk through the process of from the first moment you get to know somebody till you're deep into a relationship with them, how do you do these concrete practices? And and they are definitely teachable and I can assert to you that I'm a little better than I am 
now than I was four or five years ago because I've been spending all this time talking to experts in these skills. And I do think, you know, having read the book, I do believe you break it down in a way that was quite stunning to me that, you know, research shows that these are a set of skills, but you have to be motivated to want to be better. How do you think a closed up person or anybody else that isn't naturally this way and doesn't operate this way, what might motivate them to say, I want to be better at this? Well, there's a, a guy I quote, a University of Chicago psychologist named Nick Epley. And because he's a psychologist, he understands the thing that makes us happiest is human connections. We just love having great conversations with mm. other people. And so he's on a commuter train one day and he notices that nobody's talking to each other. They're all on their screens. So for the next several months, he pays the people on the commuter train to talk to strangers. And then he interviews them afterwards. And they all report that they had a great time talking. This is the best commute they've had in weeks. <laughs> and the, the extroverts like it. The introverts like it. Everybody has more fun. So we underestimate how much fun we'll have talking to strangers. We underestimate how deep people want to go. Uh, and I think one of the reasons we don't do it, and I say this as an expert, some of it was just we're egotistical. We're thinking about ourselves, hmm. not other people. Some of it we can't see the world through another person's perspective. There's a little story I tell in the book about a guy who's on the side of the river. A woman is on the other side of the river and she shouts <laughs> oh, to yeah. him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he says to her, you are on the other side of the river. He, he can't get out of his own perspective into her perspective. Yeah. Uh, and some of us just don't know how to do it. So we think we're going to do it wrong. And so I, I would suggest to people, if you think you're not going to enjoy it, give it a try. Like next time you're with a stranger, ask them, where, where'd you come from? What, what was your childhood like? And get them talking about their life story and see if it doesn't turn out to be fascinating. Or if you're with somebody you know better, already have some trust with, ask them the kind of big question that you'll remember the answer to forever. So mm. if this five years is a chapter in your life, what's the chapter about? If we met a year from now, what would we be celebrating? What talent do you have that you're not using? Those are big questions. Even the one question I asked recently at a dinner party was, how do your ancestors show up in your life? Mm. And there was a Dutch couple, they started talking about how, how their Dutch heritage influenced how they see the world. Black couple talked about the African-American experience. I talked about thousands of years of Jewish history. And it wasn't like we knew the answers to that question right away. But we started exploring and we, mm. I think we got to know each other a lot better and we got to know ourselves a lot better. Mm. And David, you quote a set of mental health statistics, which, you know, when I think about motivation and urgency, I, I want to share with our audience some of the stats that you have. Between 1999 and 2019, American suicide rates increased 33%. The percentage of teens reporting persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26 to 37 percent. The percentage of Americans who said they have no close friends, this one was shocking to me, yeah. quadrupled between 1990 and 2020. And in one survey, 54 percent of the people said no one knows them well. 36% of Americans say they feel lonely frequently or most of the time. And that's true for 61% of young adults and 51% of young mothers. So there's 
obviously an urgency, but what do you think has, you know, has contributed to these sort of stunning numbers? I mean, social media alone can't answer all of that, can it? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, this is the social reason I wrote the book. Partly I wrote the book to become a more human person, but I also wrote it because I think the skills I'm describing in this book are the most aggressive way to to break down and to fight against the increasing isolation of American society, the increasing distrust, the increasing sadness, and frankly, the increasing meanness. If you make people sad, they will become mean because they will perceive the fact that you don't see them. You regard Mm. them as invisible. They'll regard that as an injustice and they'll lash out. And so a sad society becomes a mean society. And I agree with you. I think social media is part of it. But I don't think social media is all of it because social media is taking place everywhere in the world. And this, a lot of this social breakdown is not happening in Denmark. It's not happening in Kenya. It's not happening in Ghana. It's not happening in Vietnam. It's happening worse here. And I think one of the things that's happened, we have a very individualistic culture, so we're all a little separated from each other. And I think in the last 50 or 60 or maybe even 70 years, we haven't done this pompous sounding thing called moral formation. We haven't formed the next generation to behave well. And moral formation sounds fancy, but really it's just three things. One, it's finding ways to restrain your own natural selfishness. Two, it's finding an ideal, something you can sacrifice in your life for and give meaning to your life. And third, it's just knowing how to treat people with consideration and respect. And so I had a young woman who had several boyfriends in her life in my class. And she said all of her boyfriends at the end of their relationship had ghosted her. Instead of having a breakup conversation, they'd all just vanished. And so she walked around with a lot of distrust, assuming all guys would do that. And no wonder she was suspicious of the world. The guys hadn't had the decency to have a breakup conversation with her. And I don't think they've been trained how to do it. I I saw a study recently about the number of guys who've never asked anybody out on a date. And the number is super high these days. Mm. And partly it's because they don't know how. They don't know how you do it. And one of the things the study found was they stink at flirting. And so I was thinking maybe our schools should teach flirting skills. <laughs> we could do worse because uh, life's a lot happier when you can flirt, ask somebody out, maybe get into a little romance. And that that takes some skills. So, David, do you think this hadn't occurred to me when I was reading the book, but do you think that this focus we've had in the schools to testing is a measure of our progress has eroded the soft skills that became a natural part of school? Yeah, I'd very much think that. You know, the schools used to think our main job is to teach character, is to produce young men and women of character. One headmaster said, I'm trying to produce students who are acceptable at a dance, invaluable at a shipwreck. Mm -hmm, So the mm -hmm. sort of person who would come. Oh, I love that. Yeah, they'll, they'll come through for you in a crisis. And then over the last several decades, the purpose of schools became teaching to the test and getting kids into Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and schools like that, or any prestigious schools. And that whole character formation fell away. And with it, all the things that used to go with it, like the schools, this, it seems old fashioned hokey to us now, but the schools used to have like courtesy clubs on how to be courteous, thrift Mm -hmm. clubs on how to save money. The Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts used to teach you how to be a good friend and good partner. Get a badge. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. It, it's I, I would w- wouldn't want to go back to those old ways of teaching character. They seem kind of old-fashioned. But at least they tried to teach character. Uh, and by character, I just mean treating people, each other with kindness and consideration. 
And now I think there are movements trying to do that. And I would point especially to the social and emotional learning parts of schools, Mm -hmm. which I think are very rigorous, very science, very data driven. They're not soft and woo woo. And unfortunately, they become a political football. And so a lot of Republican governors like Ron DeSantis hear social and emotional learning. He think, oh, that's all progressive left wing. There's nothing necessarily progressive or left wing about knowing how to make a friend. And yet it's becoming a political football like everything these days. Do you hold out some hope that that will show back up in schools? I think so. I think teachers, especially post-COVID, have seen the deterioration of behavior. Yeah. And, you know, you can't learn in school if you don't know how to relate to teacher. You can't learn in school if you feel socially unsafe. And so it's not as if social and emotional learning is some thing we put off on the side as a supplement to education. It is education. Uh, And somehow we have to get a lot better at it. And one of the goals of this book is to write a book that students in college would want to read. So they would learn how to, you know, there's so much mental health issues in college. How do you sit with your roommate when suddenly they're suffering from depression? Well, there are skills, there are ways to do this. Mm. And and I, I would hope colleges, you know, college students would learn this stuff. And David, speaking about being with a friend going through depression, you know, you wrote that very poignant essay about your friend Pete. And in the book, you say, While I've devoted my life to words, I increasingly came up against the futility of words to help Pete in any meaningful way. The feeling of impotence was existential. Share with our listeners what that experience was like for you and what you learned. Yeah, this is an example, in my case, of me uh, not being socially skilled, not knowing what to do. And so I thought I was pretty well read in psychology and stuff like that. But my oldest friend in the world, Pete, got hit with depression when we were both 57 years old. And he suffered with it for three years. And I didn't even know what depression was. And I learned over those three years talking to Pete that you can't understand depression if you've been fortunate enough never to have been hit by it by extrapolating from from your moments of sadness. That's not what depression is. Mm. As another friend of mine put it, it's a malfunction in the instrument you use to perceive reality. So Pete had these lying voices in his head that were telling him falsehoods that you're worthless, you're worthless, no one would miss you if you're gone. And I made some of those mistakes that some socially unskilled people tend to make. And the first mistake I made with talking to him, and a lot of it was over the phone because it was over COVID, I tried to like give him ideas on how to get out of depression. Like you used to take service trips to Vietnam, you found it so rewarding, you should do that. And I've since learned that that's a classic mistake. It, if you're giving ideas to someone who's depressed about how to get out of it, you're just showing that you just don't get it because it's not lack of ideas they're missing. It's lack of energy and a lot of le- other things. The second mistake I made was what the psychologists call p- positive reframing, which is to say, I said, you know, you have so much going on in your life. You should, you should be happy. You have a great marriage, great career, wonderful boys. And I was making him feel worse. I was just reminding him of the things that, he wasn't enjoying, which are palpably Mm. enjoyable. And so gradually I learned that a more constructive way to show up for him would be one, to acknowledge the reality of the situation. Just say, this sucks. I want to know what you're going through. So he doesn't feel as isolated by what he's going through. Mm. Second, just to issue a, a, a burst of goodwill. I want more for you. I want more for you. And that won't do any good, but at least show I'm, I'm on his side. The third thing you can do is a lot of little touches, a little text here, a phone call there, just to remind him that you're still around, that you're not going anywhere. 
And then the final thing I've learned, and this was from Viktor Frankl's great book, Man's Search for Meaning, which he wrote after surviving the Nazi death camps. He said, when I had to deal with somebody who was a suicidal in the death camps, I would just say to them, life has not stopped expecting things of you. Mm. That there are still things that you can do for the world. And so you have a responsibility here to stick around. And especially if because you've endured this pain, you have credibility with other people who are enduring pain and you can be of service in the world as sort of a wounded soldier, somebody who's been through it and knows what it's like to suffer. So I, I think if I'd adopted all those techniques or skills, uh, I'm not sure it would have ended, the, it would have ended differently. It, there's only so much you can do with words, mm-hmm. but at least it's a more gracious way of, of coming alongside someone going through that terrible disease. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for writing that piece, David, and thank you for sharing that, because I think increasingly we're all running into someone who is grappling with that, you know, and, you know, a lot of people like me like to solve problems. So I'm like, okay, how about if you do this? How about if you do that? What about this? What about that? And that's not the right thing, because if they're if they're depressed, that just feels overwhelming. Right. Yeah, I've learned it's usually a mistake to regard people as a, some problem-solving situations. Yeah. Best to just provide a setting in which they can voluntarily evolve. And and a, a person is a mystery that we'll never get to the bottom of. That I mean, that's one of the, frankly, the fun things about this kind of encounter. People are just way more interesting than you mm-hmm. imagine, especially from their stereotypes. When one of the diminisher tricks is this thing called stacking, where if I learn one fact about you, then I think I've learned, I can make a whole series of assumptions about who you are. Mm. You're like a Trump voter. Oh, therefore you must be the, the, this, 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 and this. You're a Jew who grew up in New York. You must believe this, this, and this, this. Nobody fits their stereotypes. I heard about a woman who was a big Trump supporter, and but she was also a lesbian biker who'd converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. It's like, what stereotype does she fit into? Like, yeah, that's what people are actually like. Well, you know, uh, one of the one of the quotes that I think ought to be plastered on billboards everywhere is you have a quote from Tolstoy, which is that alone is worth the price of admission to your book. That reminds us that I don't know who said this that we need to be able to hold two conflicting ideas in our head. And the Tolstoy quote would have us say, well, just because you're a staunch Catholic doesn't mean that you're B, that just because you're A, just because you're a Trump voter doesn't mean. And I think today we just forget that. We think we forget how complex we each are, that we can hold two conflicting things about ourselves. So I think that Tolstoy quote does describes that so beautifully. Yeah, I love the quote. He says, you know, we it's always wrong to say this person is a smart person or this person is an angry person because some, we're, and Tolstoy says, we're more like rivers. Mm. Sometimes we behave smartly. Sometimes we behave stupidly. Sometimes we're angry. Sometimes we're cheerful. And we're, we have all these opposites contained within us. And it's wrong to put each other in a very crude box. And that's increasingly what we do in public life 
we put you in a crude box, whether it's you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're an oppressor, you're oppressed. We have all these labels and these categories. That are absolutes. Right. And, and it's, they're just oversimplistic. And you've, de- you've dehumanized the person you put in the category. So, David, there were so many wonderful parts of the book. So I don't want to say one's more wonderful than the other. But you state that the quality of one's life depends quite a bit on the quality of attention they bring to the world, meaning a person looking for beauty is likely to find wonder, while a person looking for threats will find danger. And you tell two stories that stood out about the power of attention and the ability to have a conversation. And one is David Bradley, which fascinated me. And the other was a woman educator by the name of Niobe Way. Describe for us what David did, actually what David did for you, and did for others, and what Niobe learned about conversations. Yeah, well, first, what David does, he, he has, has had a tremendously successful career. He started uh, two consulting companies that grew and did very well, and then he bought the Atlantic magazine, and he basically turned that around over the course of a couple of decades. But this special, and what David's great skill is hiring people. He's great, just great at hiring people. And when he's hiring, he looks for extreme talent, something some very narrow that you can do better than other people. So in my case, I'm a writer, but I'm not just a writer. He wants to know what kind of writer I am. I'm a synthesizer. I can take a mass of information. I can find the essence. That's my one magic trick. And so he wants to define my talent very specifically. And then the second thing he does is he's hiring for what he calls spirit of generosity. Is the person basically going to be generous around the workplace? And he, he tries to discern that by a method he calls take me back which is take me back to high school. Who were you in high school? And he believes we were, we all carry around a lot of the insecurities we have in high school. So he wants to know about the person. But the trick he does for his friends is called the index card trick. And so you come to him with a problem. Maybe you're trying to decide whether to marry somebody or whether to divorce somebody or take this job or that job. I went to him many years ago because I was overwhelmed. I submitted to too many things and I wasn't using my time well. And so he asks you a bunch of questions and you see him writing down on index cards. And then he hands you a newspaper and he says, read this for 10 or 15 minutes and I'll get right back to you. And while you're reading the paper, he's writing more on index cards. And then in my case, he he laid out one index card and he said, here's on this card I've written, I've ranked all the things you actually want to spend your time on. And then there was a second index card where he ranked all the things I was spending my time on. And then he had another card which was not answering my problems, but it was giving me a way to think about the issue, a framework to think through the issue so I can make how I want to spend my time more like how I am spending my time. And just giving me that mental framework to think through my problem was enough to be enormously helpful. And I'm sitting in my home office right now and I have the index cards he gave me 15 or 20 years ago. They're on a wow. shelf back there. And I know many people who've got the index card treatment and they keep their the index cards he gave them taped to their mirrors. Uh, It's a daily reminder, here's how I think through the core problems of my life. And so David is just very good at giving people that treatment. And they walk away thinking, okay, my problem is solvable. I can figure this one out. And and David, that, that to me depicted the power of attention, that he was helping you reorganize your own thinking. Yeah, David has a phrase, coming in under. And so it's when you're in conversation, 
It's putting the other person at the center, coming in under. And he'll, he uh, literally, I've known the guy for 25 years pretty well. He finishes almost every conversation with what, what can I do for you? How can I help? And so it's just an other centered way of being. And mm. I think of, I use the word, I borrow from Pope Francis, the word accompaniment, which is an other way centered way of being through life, just in the normal circumstance of life. You're not having deep conversation. You're just hanging out. And so I use the image of a pianist who is accompanying a singer. And the pianist is sort of paying attention to how the singer is presenting the song, doing what he can to make her shine. So it's an other-centered way of being. And then the other story you mentioned was, I think this is the one, Naomi Way. Yeah. And she does many things that teaches at NYU, but she also teaches seventh grade boys the skills of how to listen, how to ask good questions. And so in the beginning of one of her classes, she says to her, this classroom of seventh grade boys, okay, I'm going to sit in front of the room. You can ask me any question you want, and I'll answer honestly. And so the first boy asks her, are you married? And she says, no. And the second boy asks her, are you divorced? And she says, yes. And the third boy asks her, do you still love him? And she's like taken aback. She's like, right. whoa, whoa. And her eyes tear up. And she answers, yes, I do. And the fourth boy asks, does he know? And the fifth boy asks, do your kids know? And so the part of the moral of the story is kids are just phenomenal at asking questions. Say like, go right there and they want to get right. You know, they want to know the answers. And, and I think Naomi's theory is that a lot of us uh, lose that ability. We become less good at asking questions as we age because we get too shy. We get too insecure. We're afraid we're going to look dumb. And so we're not good at asking questions as, as most kids are. And David, you know, in order to ask these questions or be in this kind of conversation, both parties have to agree to a kind of a vulnerability. And, you know, how do you avoid the risk that you're willing to be vulnerable, but your questions might seem too intense or they're not ready for it? How do you, how do you like create the on-ramp for those conversations? Yeah. Well, you have to do it patiently, obviously. You, you can't rush a relationship. I have a great quote in the book from the writer D.H. Lawrence, who says, you approach another person the way you approach a deer in the forest just with mm. great patience and great care. So in the beginning of a conversation, you're just meeting someone, you're not going to ask them, like, if this chapter is five years of the chapter in your life, what's the chapter about? That's just too personal a question right away. And so you, I start by asking people about where they grew up. I sometimes ask about where they got their name. It tends to be, they talk about their family or their ethnic heritage. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you get to know somebody a little better. I, I had fun with a group and I asked them, what's your favorite unimportant thing about you? And mm. so I had this academic who I thought was super high tone talk about how much he loves trashy reality TV. That was his favorite unimportant thing about him. And I said, you know, I like the early Taylor Swift better than later Taylor Swift. And so that's an important, but I happen to have a thing for high school breakup songs or something. So it's not important, <laughs> but it's, it's there. <laughs> and so then you're walking through the vulnerability gradients. Mm. And so I, I, you know, but I will say I found in life there's a lot of people who are going to betray you, but it's still more effective to lead with trust. And sometimes mm -hmm. people will betray you, but most of the time you'll bring out a better version of that person. Yeah. And so I, I still think it's best to lead with curiosity and lead with trust. And even though if you, you do get betrayed some of the time. Yeah. You know, it reminds me when, and when you talked about Viktor Frankl, my son wrote his college essay 
my mother's an Auschwitz survivor, and he wrote his college essay about the fact that her response to that was to only be kind. Mm. That, that was the way she decided she could cope with the betrayal. I mean, betrayal is not even an adequate word. And Edward, my son, just watched her. We all watched her do that. Yeah. You know, the opposite of what anybody might expect. But before I ask you the last question, I can't have David Brooks on and not ask a couple of political questions. So here, here's an easy one, David. Is the 2024 ballot inevitably Trump versus Biden? It's not inevitable, but I'd say it's 95% Biden. He's, he'll be the nominee and 90% Trump. And, I, you know, Biden, you know, a president who's sitting in office pretty much gets to decide. And, you know, I've talked to Biden about this and I can tell you he thinks he's good at the job. He likes the job. He thinks it's necessary that he be the leader of the country against Donald Trump and against China and against Putin and against the rise of authoritarianism. He thinks history has put him there in the right time. And so he's very self-confident. And uh, I will say as someone who gets to talk to him from not a, a lot, but rare occasions, he's, he's not the doddering old grandpa that some of the Republicans portray. Mm -hmm. He's not as fast as maybe he was when I used to interview him 20 years ago, but he's like a pitcher who used to throw 94 and now throws 87. So he's still very much in control of that White House, I guarantee you. And that's but, but David, the polls are not seeing that, you know, and how much does that worry you? Oh, it worries me a great deal as someone who wants Donald Trump to not be reelected. But I, I'd right. say a few things. One, I think over time, it takes a long time for to voters to recover from it, inflation. Inflation just puts people in a terrible mood. And if you look at history, it takes between six months and a year before people really say, oh, no, the economy actually is recovering. And I think we'll have passed that time in by election day. I think the, the voters will be happier with the economy than they are now, and they're still living in the shadow of the recessionary burst, or the inflationary burst we had. And second, you know, I think Joe Biden was the, the answer for the Democrats last time because they needed a more moderate, frankly, a, a guy who was not part of the sort of educated elite who seemed more working class. They need a guy like that just to occupy sort of a centrist position in the, in the electorate and win over independent voters. And Biden was the answer then. I think he'll probably still be the answer. There's no obvious better candidate in my view. I think it would have to be Kamala Harris. I'm not sure she's a better candidate. And so, and then finally, I just would say none of us know how the electorate's going to feel in a year. We should just, mm. we just know whether we think the guy did a good job or not. And when I look at his posture toward foreign affairs. I think he's done a pretty good job. I think his main goal or the main goal I was hoping for was that he would use the federal government to redistribute resources to people who've been left behind by the economy, yeah. especially those without a college degree. And I think he's done a very good job of that. A lot of money has gone precisely those places that were left behind. And so I, I don't pretend I know what the electorate's going to be like in a year, but I do. I go on whether I think he'd done a good job. And I, I do think he's done a pretty good job. And what are your observations about this decision coming before the Supreme Court that Jack Smith is bringing and what that might mean about the Supreme Court's overreaching or obviously what it could mean to Trump in the election? 
Yeah, I, I guess there are some subjects which I don't have informed views on and I don't write about. And one of them is the Supreme Court. <laughs> I learned yeah. I can I I just don't have the background and the the decisions then the precedents that go into their decision making. I don't have any legal education. So I, I confess I I don't have an informed opinion on that. Okay. Well, let's hope it goes the way we'd like it to go. <laughs> so in closing, in your book, one of the last chapters that you have is how do your ancestors show up in your life? And so the question I'd like to close with is how do your ancestors show up in your life? And what's the spiritual place that you never leave, David? Yeah, uh, well, I can answer that last one easily. I, my, if you started, if anybody knows the geography of New York City and you start at 14th Street and 2nd Avenue and you walk south about a half mile, you pass where my great-grandfather at a butcher shop, where my, my grandfather practiced law, where both my parents grew up, where I grew up, and where my son went to college for a little while. So that's five generations in one little neighborhood of Lower East Side of New York. And so that to me is the spiritual home. I haven't left in, lived in New York for a long time, but I'm still emotionally home there. And I have memories of every block in Lower Manhattan, especially of me as a 10-year-old, me as a 20-year-old, me as a 40-year-old, mm-hmm. uh, me as a 50-year-old. I have many memories coded there. So that's that's my home spot. You know, I think I have a quote in the book, I think from... Um, Tony Morrison, that we live our childhoods twice, that we we live it and then we go back and figure out what it all meant. And so my my childhood there would be where what it all meant. Now, I forget, the first question was, uh, I've talked too long on the second question. No, that's okay, because it's sort of, how did the, your ancestors show yeah. up in your life? Well, I would say that my view is we're all formed by things that happened thousands of years ago. And if you look at the settlement patterns of the U.S., Different people in different parts of England settled in different parts of the U.S. And so the people from Northern England settled in Appalachia. The people from Eastern England settled in New England. People from Southern England settled in Philadelphia or New Hampshire, or I mean, Virginia. And they brought their culture, the Scots-Irish, when they came here, you know, 400 years ago, they were battlers. And the parts of Appalachia where the Scots-Irish settled, they still basically are disproportionately fill up our ranks of our armed forces. They're fighters. And so in my own case, I come from whatever, 5,000 years of Jewish history. And one, we were pushed into exile, so our religion was no longer a temple religion, it was a book religion. And so I think my bookishness derives from that mm-hmm. pattern in, in, in Jewish history. Two, and a little more subtly, Jews were this small people in a marginal fringe of the, of the Roman Empire, and or before that, previous empires. And they still decided that God had centered history around them, that the covenant with the Jewish people was the central fact of human history. That's kind of an audacious claim for a marginal yeah. <laughs> people in a far off place, but they said, no, it's all on us. And that came with a sense of pressure, a sense, are we living up to the covenant? We have to live up to the covenant, a sense of moral imperative to continue to grow and, and be faithful to the ideals that God has passed down to us. And I think that pressure still haunts me and maybe why I'm trying to be a grower through life that uh, am I living up to the covenant? Am I living up to the covenant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we could have a whole nother hour conversation on that. And one quick thing about the neighborhood of 14th Street, 
one of the things that super upsets me these days is I lived below 14th Street, but I was born at Beth Israel and they, they're they closing the hospital. I did not know my brother was born at yeah. that hospital. I yeah, that's sad. really mean to us. <laughs> yeah, that's very sad. <laughs> So, uh, David, the real, real last question is the world feels like it's unraveling. And do you still find ways to remain cautiously optimistic? And do you think we as a country still have the capacity to have faith in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, A, I started this little organization called Weave, the Social Fabric Project. And we just go around and we ask people in every town across America who's trusted here. And everybody gives us names. And these are people who've dedicated themselves to serving their communities, the homeless, the poor, the kids. There are people with great social skills. And so they're everywhere. And we just need to magnify their effect and act like them, be little community nodes. And I have a friend who says, I practice aggressive friendship. I'm the person in my neighborhood who really invites people over. I'm the one who hosts the holiday barbecue. And so I, that's, that is part of social repair. On a larger scale, I've been helped over these last five years, in particular by a book I read called The Politics of Disharmony by a political scientist named Samuel Huntington. And he wrote it in 1983. And he said, you know, there's this weird pattern to American history that every 60 years we start to go through what he calls a moral convulsion. People get disgusted with established power, their bitter, bitter political partisanship, formerly marginalized groups demand inclusion. A new communications technology comes on the scene. A new highly moral generation comes on the scene demanding change. And he said this happened in the 1770s with the revolutionary generation. It happened with the 1830s with Andrew Jackson and populism. Happened in the 1890s in the Industrial Revolution, the progressive movement, and happened in the 1960s. And so writing in 1983, he says, you know, I don't know if I believe in the 60-year pattern, but if it holds, sometime around 2020, America will go through another moral convulsion. And I'm reading this in mm. 2020. I thought, wow, pretty good prediction. And the thing that makes you happy is when you're in the middle of the moral convulsion, you know, people are tearing down the old order and building something new. It feels terrible. It feels like you're never going to recover. 1968, it must have felt like the whole world was coming apart. But we get over it and we rebuild new cultures and we rebound. We rebounded from the previous five. And so I imagine we're going to rebound from this one and build a new culture that'll be different than the one we lived through in the 80s and 90s. But hopefully it'll be more up to date for the problems we face today. Mm. Well, David, that's a lovely note to end on. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to encourage everyone to read your new book, How to Know a Person, we, we can start a campaign for this to be adopted as a curriculum in high schools and colleges, and that'll start creating the little spider web of people thinking a little bit differently about how they touch each other. Oh, well, nothing would make me happier. So thank you for the uh, attention, the kind words. I really appreciate your, your attention to my, to my book. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Okay, perfect. Hopefully we'll get you and your aura back to New Haven at some <laughs> okay. point. I miss it. I have a lot of friends there who I miss, so I, I have to get back. All right. Be well. Okay. Take care. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. 
we have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out, and guess what? It was Just the Right Book. So visit JustTheRightBook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to JustTheRightBook.com, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at JustTheRightBook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selleck. Our editor is Gino Cordone at PleasantPodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjulia.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just the Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.